Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're talking with Dr. R.T. Mullins, and we're going to be discussing time. He has some unique views on this. I hope the listener enjoys. For the Catholic listeners, it might not all be Catholic, but hey, that's okay. Um, We're going to hear some really cool stuff. Dr. Mullins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, the way I wanted to kick it off was talking about what on earth is time. Famously, Augustine said that he can define time until somebody asks him. So I'm going to see if you can best Augustine and define time for me. Yeah, because I always find that quote annoying because that's how most uh, textbooks on philosophy of time or like books on God and time start is just quoting Augustine. And I'm like, but that doesn't tell me anything. So, you know, got to step it up. So so here's what I'm working with in um, a current book project. So I say that time is a natured entity that makes change possible and it's the source of moments and it's the thing that unifies a series of moments into a timeline. Um, Now, uh, let me just tease that out just a little bit more here. So I made a distinction between time and moments of time. And this is very common with uh, people who defend what's called the absolute theory of time like I do. So a moment of time is just the way things are but could be subsequently otherwise. So right now I'm sitting here talking to you at the next moment, I could just get up and say like, you know, screw this interview, I'm done with it. Uh, Or I could go, oh no, let's carry on. Like things could be subsequently otherwise. Uh, And so time is the thing that makes these moments exist uh, or is responsible for their existence and is the thing that orders a series of moments into a coherent timeline. Gotcha. Um, Well, one question that popped into my mind right there was you define the moment as something that, is one way, but could be otherwise. I'm curious why you include that second part of the definition. Let me just give you an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Aristotle talks about if you have somebody's foot in the sand from all eternity, then the sand taking the shape of the foot is eternally caused by that foot. But if that was a necessary foot, (laughs) then we would have this necessary imprint into the sand And therefore, it would seem to not be a moment because it couldn't be otherwise if it was indeed a necessary foot. So I I think that you're you're getting to something here with that second part of the definition. Yeah, so this is good. Uh, So for Aristotle, when you're talking about something that's eternal, it's also going to be necessary and immutable because he thinks all those things are coextensive, given his understanding of modal logic. So this is what's going to distinguish a, a timeless moment from a temporal moment because a timeless moment is the way things are but it cannot be subsequently otherwise because it's timeless. There are no subsequent state of affairs when you're talking about a timeless thing. Uh, whereas with temporal things, if with the temporal world, then you're looking at the things that are one way, but they could be otherwise at a next moment. Um, so it's, it's part of it's going to be, again, going back to what time is, is this natured entity that makes change possible. And so if, if change is really possible, things are one way and could subsequently be otherwise. Okay, gotcha. So we kind of have two. We have the temporal, the temporal, which means just flash fly, fried and crispy. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we have the timeless moment, right? Yes. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and that's going to um, be really useful when you're thinking about lots of theological doctrines where, so for example, it's very standard to talk about God's timeless eternity. So you want to say, well, when did God predestine things? And be like, well, from all eternity. You're like, oh, right. So you're, you're giving a date to when God does things. And it's that timeless moment. Uh, on standard like traditional catholic theology so you you brought into the the discussion the idea of change but elsewhere i don't know a ton about your work but i do Mm -hmm. know that you doubt the traditional um definition 
where we say that time is a measure of change, implying that that's kind of circular because change includes a concept of time. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of flesh that out? And you use change in your definition. Are you using it in a different way? Yeah. So, so here's what you got to understand when you're looking at the, uh, well, that's not exactly traditional, but it's, it's, it's pretty big in the Western tradition and the Eastern tradition, but there's a lot of dissent. So what this, this view is called is called the relational or sometimes called the reductionist theory of time, because what it's doing is it's saying time is not really a substance. It's not really a thing in our ontology. Instead, we are reducing time to something else in our ontology. Uh, and so what the relational theory, the reductionist theory is trying to do is trying to say there's a good candidate for what we reduce time to. And we reduce time to events because we want to say time is just this relationship between events, um, between events that are one way and then another way and then another way. So, so some kind of relationship between time and change uh, is, is the idea. But what they're reducing it to is events because uh, events are supposed to be one way and then another event is describing things being another way. So here's what you're doing here. You're not really saying time's a thing. You're saying time is just an event. And you're like, well, cool. Tell me what an event is so we can really get a good, you know, good grasp of our full ontology. Now, an event on every standard definition that I've seen uh, usually sneaks in time into the definition. So here's an example. So an event is a substance having a property at a time. And you want to be like, well, hang on. If I'm reducing time to events, I'm reducing time to non-temporal things in my ontology, and then you just snuck time right back into the definition of an event, then you didn't really reduce time away to a non-temporal thing. So you've got what's called an ontological circularity. You're trying to get rid of time. You're trying to say time's not really a thing. And then when I look at the thing that you're trying to reduce time to, you've already got time built in. Uh, it's, it's already presupposed. And so that's why it's going to be circular. That's, that's, that's the idea. Okay, interesting. So the way I, I I'm still forming my idea about philosophy. That, that's okay. I, I, it's it's a hard it's a hard area. Oh my goodness. I don't think I'll ever have a one hundred percent settled anything <laughs> this topic. Um I mean I describe it as the intellectual or at least the philosophical equivalent of the deadlift. It just employs every <laughs> single muscle you have. It's not necessarily the most useful of exercises. But it does strengthen just a whole host of different uh, of different intellectual muscles. Um, so definitely a fan of philosophy of time. But with this time is the measure of change mm -hmm. definition. I I would certainly agree that we can take this in a in a circular way. However, what would you say to somebody who would say that change is the actualization of a potential, and that can be? in that type of temporal sequence, at which point it'd be subject to that type of critique, or as the more existential Thomas might say, it could just be actualizing the potential for existence, at which point that doesn't necessarily have to be in this uh, temporal sequence. Something could, in theory, have existed from all eternity um, and yet not contain existence as part of its nature and, in, and have to be caused by, say, God. Mm -hmm. There's a couple different things going on there. Um, so let me try to track down as much as I can. So if you want to say that, uh, so Aristotle's view is to try to like reduce everything down to like act and potentiality. So you, you don't really have time in your ontology uh, because you're really talking about just things changing from actuality to, or from potentiality to actuality. Right. Right. 
So if, I mean, and, and so that might be a way to go, but again, you're going to have, you're trying to do this reduction of going, time's not a thing. I'm just trying to reduce it down to these sort of issues. And right. you're like, okay, cool. So when does this change take place? And you're like, well, it takes place at these different moments. And you're like, well, okay, cool. Wh where did those moments come from? Are these temporal moments? Is this a before and after? Uh, and so what you do is you start sneaking in all sorts of temporal notions again. But if you're really trying to be with this Aristotelian reductionist strategy, you're not allowed to do that. You can't just all of a sudden just say there's no there's no real temporal notions. Those aren't fundamental to, to my story of the world. And then start bringing them back into your story of the world, like presupposing them in your story of the world. And so Aristotle faces this challenge, like Galen, um, the uh, the philosopher and uh, and and a doctor, medical doctor, like, I mean, he, he brings these objections up to Aristotle and Aristotle tries to deal with him in a couple of places, but a lot of different scholars will say he's never really satisfied. He never really gets out of this kind of, uh, kind of worry. Um, so that's, that's the main issue is just going, don't tell me you're getting rid of time and then start sneaking all these notions back into your, to your story of the world. Well, I'm going to have to read that. That sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so it sounds like the critique is that you are implying a, a moment that mm -hmm. this happened yep um and therefore the moment implies time and therefore it's circular i can well, imagine uh, well not therefore not it's circular but uh, therefore you've you haven't successfully reduced time away you can at least say that right okay yeah. so it's still included somehow in, yeah. in that conception okay so it, the last philosopher of time i had on here was like a huge fan of, of infinite sequences and mm. uh, eternality all sorts of things like that big fan um, I could imagine somebody like him saying, oh, no, 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 um, Ryan, what you're saying is that there has to be a moment, but the nature of eternity is such that we're not defining a specific moment. If we defined a specific moment in the past, we'd be talking about a finite sequence here. We're talking about a finite distance from the now. The whole nature of, inf of infinity is that there isn't. Uh, this type of, of defined individual moment. Otherwise, we could measure the distance from this moment to that, and that would be a, a finite distance. So what would you say to that type of critique? I guess I don't see the problem. Like, I can define things, um, but that seems pretty cool. So, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling the force of whatever this objection is supposed to be, because uh, basically, it's, it sound, at least the way you laid it out, I might have missed something. It sounds like you're saying, if we define our terms, we can measure distances between moments. And I want to go, yeah. Yeah, we do that all the time. Um, oh. That's basic physics. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see the problem. Okay, so if a... Um, well, how about just a layout exactly... I tried to summarize what the critique mm -hmm. was. Maybe I misunderstood. So just kind of summarize um, what your critique of that would be, and then I'll see if I can reformulate, or maybe we're just misunderstanding each other. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so, so again, so it sounded like you were saying, um, if I can define things, define moments, then I could like measure the dis distance between moments and then i'd be able to say there's a finite amount of time uh or like a finite number of number of moments uh to which i want to go yeah that's cool that's exactly what i want so okay yeah. right right yeah. right I, I think yeah so I, I would imagine that you would say then you're not um taking the example of a truly eternally uh, distant moment per se because oh, instead yeah. we're speaking about finite moment because i agree we can do exactly what you said but that would make that thing a a finite um a finite moment and not something which is just a, a part of say an infinite series 
Yeah. Now, if you want an infinite series, well, I think that's just impossible because um, I don't think you can. I, I think most of the time when we're talking about infinities, we're just playing with numbers. We're not really talking about reality. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I guess, yeah, yeah, I'm not worried. Um, but it, saying that something's a finite moment, well, it's just what a moment is. It's a single one off uh, thing. So so I just guess I just want to shrug my shoulders and be like, yeah, so what? So I also agree that I I don't think that we can have an infinite amount of actual time. I think an infinite amount of potential time. Sure. Why not? Just like we can have an infinite amount of potential natural numbers. Of course, I don't think we can have an actual one in reality. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. But I can certainly imagine people launching some similar critique. Um, well, cool. Well, I think we have a basic idea of time. You made some uh, interesting points there unifies let's see if i can recap and remember yeah, sure okay so it's the source of moments mm -hmm. um it unifies these moments into a timeline mm -hmm. and i think there was a third point yeah it makes change possible so time makes is the natured entity possible. that makes change possible gotcha gotcha okay well feel free to um to just head on off to uh whatever area you want to uh to hit next i feel like we have this um basic definition pretty much in our heads you seem to relate time to being a property of god is that correct i'd be very curious how exactly that gets gets played out yeah so this is a this is a more provocative thesis so when i was first kind of toying around with this a few years ago i just thought this was nuts and i, and I didn't like it but then um i've actually traced down a lot more people who uh, have affirmed this throughout history uh, so i'll give you an example of someone who affirmed this throughout history um so isaac newton is, is a great proponent of this. Uh, and then the Catholic philosopher uh, from the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, named uh, Nicole Orsme also affirmed this. Uh, so apparently, according to Emily Thomas's book on, called Absolute Time, this view that space and time are like divine attributes uh, was just the most popular view during the scientific revolution. Um, so it might be crazy, still might be crazy, but it used to be really popular at one point. Um, so let me explain the idea a bit. So the idea of the absolute theory of time is that time is a substance. It's an actual thing in our ontology. So like I said earlier, and then it has a bunch of different roles or functions that it plays. Um, so this substance is, the, again, the thing that makes change possible. And it's the thing that is the source of moments. And it's the thing that unifies a series of moments into a timeline. Well, uh, there's a few kind of problems you might ha have if you want to say that this is a, a thing that's separate from God. Uh, so it, you might have this objection to go, well, God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of uh, you know everything, and but then you're like, well, time's this like uncreated eternal substance. Well, well, if God's the creator of all things, and he couldn't, I mean, he can't create an uncreated substance. So, ooh, well, okay, God's not the creator of all things. Uh, and so, someone like um, uh, Ragnata Shiromani, who is a uh, scholastic kind of like a scholastic philosopher in the in the late Middle Ages in the Hindu tradition, he looks at objections like this and he goes, "Yeah, you know what? We don't really need." time to be a separate substance from God. What we should instead say is that that God is time or time is an attribute of God because God is an eternal substance. God is a natured entity that makes change possible and he's the source of moments and he's definitely the thing that organizes a series of moments into a coherent timeline. So God's the eternal substance that you know plays all these roles. So there you go. God is time or time is an attribute of God. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so would this be similar? Is this a sensorium view? Uh, Isaac Newton's sense? 
Is that under that type of class? That that fits more with his understanding of space. Um, okay. And so Newton does say that that space is also a divine attribute. I I'm gonna have to just admit I don't really understand space very well. Me neither. <laughs> it's 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 weird um, stuff, you know. <laughs> absolutely, I could see a similar argument um, to what you just said running here. That maybe uh, space is the the source of places. It unifies yes. uh, distance. So I could see something very similar running. Um, it, you sound more persuaded that this works for time and not space. Um, just quickly, is there something that seems to to, to break this the symmetry between the two for you that that you support the the argument from time and not necessarily from space because it's, it's because i find the idea of time to be very fundamental because whenever we're talking about something we just naturally predicate a win of it so even if you want to say god's timeless you still predicate a win for god you say from all eternity uh so it, so it just seems like it's just time is just part of a very fundamental part of reality whereas space it, it might be I, I just don't know. Um, so here's here's what you'd be debating is if you say space is just relational, uh, you're going to say it's, it's space is not a thing. It's just a relationship between physical objects. Um, but you can move physical objects around and you're like, well, what am I, what are they moving in? And you're like, well, they're not really moving in anything. And you're like, well, then I kind of lose my grasp of it. Uh, whereas the absolute theory is going to be like, ah, well, they're moving in space there's these actual locations where they could move and that's the fundamental story. I, I just don't know. And I, I just, yeah, I've just, I just don't know what to do with space, I've just not been able to study it enough to really give a confident answer on the eighties issues. So how deeply have you looked into the physics side of this? Because I, I think it's mm -hmm. interesting that in most areas of philosophy, there's not too many empirical tests that we could perform to try to get knowledge. However, with philosophy of time, although there absolutely subject to interpretation and we need to be very careful with mm -hmm. uh, whatever findings we get it seems that we actually have a few avenues where we can test things empirically um where was i going with that oh <laughs> okay so there seems to be this relation between space and time mm -hmm. um so it would be very curious if um if the arguments for time being kind of like that sensorium go through but space does not and time is somehow identified with God, but space is not, why would it be that we see this cooperation of space and time so deeply? For instance, when you, I don't know, warps, quote unquote, space time using a black hole. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about space time as this actual thing, um, you, what you need to keep in mind is that this is a mathematical construct. It's an idealized mathematical construct that intentionally ignores the difference between space and time in order to make our equations simpler and easier. So it's not actually trying to capture the full story of reality. It's just trying to make the, the job of the physicist easier. Uh, and so I'm like, that's cool. That's fine. Um, but the philosopher of physics, Tim Maudlin, will constantly say, do not uh, get your the difference between a diagram and reality mixed up. So on a diagram, yeah, you can treat space and time as the same thing, but don't start pretending like that diagram is telling you everything about reality because space and time are not the same thing. Uh, so, so yeah, sure. Like you can like uh, mathematically construct something called space time, but is that telling me anything about reality? I, I don't, I don't think so because the, because the way the mathematics is constructed is intentionally ignoring the difference between space and time. So for example, it's intentionally ignoring the fact that, that, that time has a unique direction, whereas space does not. So 
I, I guess I'm not, I'm just not terribly bothered by, um, the fact that we have some mathematical models that talk about space and time being the same thing. Gotcha. Um, well, before we leave the, the physics, um, mm -hmm. kind of subject, let me throw you, and this one might be just an easy pitch for you. I don't know. Who knows? Um, Maybe I'll just like break down crying. I mean, these are, these are all possibilities. <laughs> I mean, you can do that. I can edit it out. It's fine. Um, <laughs> fermions, right? There's those little guys up in the upper atmosphere. I think they call fermions. They no. Um, oh, what am I looking for? Oh, it's the, it's the one that starts with a T. Oh, so T, they can T, travel right. faster oh, than light. Yeah. yeah. Well, they you know one tenth the speed of light, right? And mm -hmm. they shouldn't actually exist um, by the time they hit Earth. Usually, based on the speed that they decay. But because there's a dilation of time between us here on Earth and them, because they're moving at a tenth the speed of light, we do, in fact, but tachyons, there you go. Tachyons, there you we, go. We do find the little buggers hitting Earth. Um, but you seem to have said earlier that we are, are taking an absolute view of time. And yet it seems that there's this relative um, time, you know, their time, our time. And it seems to be scientifically measured. So there you go. There's the pitch. Mm -hmm. Let's see a home run, Ryan. Yeah. So, so when you're affirming the absolute theory of time, you're still saying that there's a sense in which you can talk about relative time. So Newton has this distinction. Uh, and then also when you look at the Hindu tradition and the Jainist uh, traditions, they also have this distinction between absolute and what they call conventional time. Uh, and so here's what the conventional time is. Conventional time is just clocks. It's not really talking about time. It's just talking about clocks. And when, um, when Einstein starts developing his special and his general theory of relativity, he takes a verificationist approach to, to his ontology. And it basically just says time just is clocks. It's just our measuring instruments. Same thing with space. Space just is uh, our rods. So all there are is just rods and clocks. And so when you're looking at these time dilation or all these weird time paradoxes, what you're talking about is not time. You're just talking about clocks which is fine. That's interesting to talk about clocks, um, but it's not telling me anything about time itself. It's just talking, it's just telling me that clocks, they're kind of cool and clocks, uh, the, they can be really screwed up by gravity. Um, so, you know, okay, cool. Thanks. You know, your clocks, your measuring instruments, they can get screwed up by gravity. That, it doesn't tell me anything interesting about time. Gotcha. So it seems to be saying something about change since we could, we could put a mechanical clock up there mm -hmm. or we could use a, a, a decay based cesium clock mm -hmm. and they're both being messed up. So there's some type of common thing that's being, mm -hmm. that's being messed up. Is that just their rate of change to the, the next thing or, or, or is a Correct. moment being okay? Gotcha. So it's, it's the rate of change compared to another changing thing because that's all clocks are clocks are just uh comparing certain kinds of changes to other kinds of changes in the natural world that's just that's just what a clock is okay thinking on the fly here so we so we just said that that's the their rate of change we we understand what the change is say the clicking mm -hmm. to the next second um how exactly is the the rate itself changed so we have so we have we we have the change over time mm -hmm. would be the rate right yeah and then the change it seems to be the same change right so we're, right. we have Clicking to the next second would be the change. So in order to have this dilate, it seems that we have to have the denominator, right? Time itself. Right. Change. So again, remember, no, 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 you're, you're, you're formulating it right. But remember, the, the, the time here is not talking about actual time. It's just talking about whatever the clock says, uh, because of Einstein's verificationism that's built into uh, the story of the world. So again, uh, what you're doing here is you're when you have these clocks, you're comparing uh, one tick of a clock to another tick of a clock. That's it. Um, and so the, the, the differences, the dilations are just when you're comparing the two clocks. 
So it's not like there's this, this, this absolute sequence of time on this sort of story um, where you can compare the clocks to. Uh, it's just that you're comparing clocks to each other uh, on this Einsteinian approach. And that's how you generate all of these really weird time paradoxes. Okay. So, um, so we have to keep in mind what, what when we use the word time in, in the Einsteinian context, what it really means. All right. So it's simply looking at the measurement differences given the two instruments, which are being compared somehow to each other. affected by, by these yeah. two and being compared yeah. to each other. Exactly. Um, which is weird. Sure. But, um, <laughs> but it's not terribly interesting. So when I was in Helsinki, um, I was, I was on the 11th floor of this really tall, uh, apartment building and the clocks at the top of the building, um, they run at a different rate than the clocks at the bottom because gravity affects your clocks. Uh, and I want to go, well, wow, that's weird. But when I'm upstairs, am I really like, you know, three seconds into the future from downstairs? Well, no, no, it's just the clocks compared to each other. Just like they're going at different rates because gravity affects clocks. And you're like, okay, cool. It's not really telling you anything about time. It's just telling me things about clocks. So how would we know that something is moving through time? You know, for example, we, we have that astronaut who comes back and we say, oh, mm -hmm. he's with three minutes, wait, younger, older, something. <laughs> um, wait, is he younger? Yeah, he's supposed to be younger, right? Yeah, I think he's supposed to be younger, right? Because things move slower when you're moving uh, at a higher velocity. Um, so we say, look, there's these changes in his body. Pers let's say mm -hmm. so he went through uh, fewer changes through maybe we could say he he passed through fewer moments right um but that leads us into the question of okay yeah but he was experiencing moments um we were experiencing moments that wasn't actually different how do we know um when time passes and i'll kind of throw in for another example if you want to take this one instead um, I forget who offers the example of Earth and I think Earth 2. And in Earth 1, we have every single year a year's events go by. And in Earth 2, it's every other year events happen. And then every other year, things just absolutely stop. And to their perspective, they're just like Earth 1. Except we would say from Earth 1's perspective, Earth 2 only experiences every other year. So that kind of leads us to the question of, how do we know? <laughs> how do yeah. we know a time is passing? I, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I don't know how to uh, say other than just I experience changes. Um, I experience one one moment to the next. Uh, that, I mean, that's, that's the only way you could really know. Um, just the stream of consciousness that you have. Uh, that's that's how you recognize that there's you're going from one moment to the next to the next to the next. I mean, right. So we, it's, we... it's really as simple as that. Um, but I think with the examples you're wanting to get at, like... Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's something else you're wanting to get other than the just really obvious of I experience one thing and then another. Well, the clock, the clock's not conscious. And yet I yeah. think we can say that it's experiencing some type of time and telling us about it. Yeah. Now, that can be not accurate. Sometimes it is accurate yeah. and it is in order to be truly known, it needs to be known by a conscious rational agent. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, it seems to be a way that we could say this time, is um, experiencing the change and recognizing it based on its structure in a similar way that we move through time, we note the change and we recognize it according to what we are. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's the what's yeah. going through my mind here. Yeah, which, which is, I mean, it all seems accurate to me because yeah, you're experiencing one thing and then another. And if I look at a clock and I see at one moment, its hands are in such and such position. Then I look again the other a little bit later, and I'm like, oh, it's 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 uh, hands have moved. Okay, the clock's also just changing as well uh, in time. That's, right. That's cool. And that seems to make it more than just like 
just a descriptor. It's a participant there, which mm-hmm. kind of circles me back to the question of when we have the dilation of the two, mm-hmm. we have a fixed change and then we have time as the denominator. It does seem to be experiencing that time in a similar way that we would experience um, that time. And if we were the clock, which is being dilated, like in the mm-hmm. the astronaut example, we seem to are we coming in contact with a different timeline or are we we not? Uh, I see. OK, so this is a different question. Um, right. So we're kind first, of leading into yeah. the next one there, because it seems like we're in your absolute view of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It seems like, like there's yeah. two. Cl- and that kind of resolved our difficulty earlier with the clock dilation. We're saying there is a universal time. And the measure of it changed between these two points. Um, but you talk about, in I think your third point, about how it unifies a timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the absolute view of time. Yep. Um, we That is the timeline for all. Um, how exactly do we square this universal time on the same timeline with a change in the relative positions of the things in the timeline? Okay, I see what you're saying. So basically, like, say uh, I've got a twin brother, and he goes up into space, and he goes like somehow travels at this at the speed of light, and then he comes back, uh, and he's he's experienced less time than I have. And then, so how how how's, what's going on there? Is that, is that kind of what you're wanting? Yeah, to I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. So um, the absolute theory will say, well, well, yeah, we we can all experience uh, the the objective amount of time in different subjective ways. Um, but we all get there at the same time. Um, so here's an example of this. Uh, I, I get really nervous when I'm flying. Uh, and and so, you know, I'm on this one flight to Germany and there was a, a lot of turbulence. Uh, and the flight is only, it's only like an hour and a half long, but there's all this turbulence. And I'm like, this is feeling like an eternity. My goodness, you know, every bump is just making my heart just beat faster and faster. Uh, but the guy next to me, you know, he's, he's he seems totally fine. He's just drinking his wine. Like it's no big deal. He's, he's just really smooth. And then like, we get off the plane and he's like, man, that just went by so quickly. Whereas I'm like, that was an eternity of just hellish nightmare. Uh, so we had different ex- subjective experiences uh, and, and different experiences about how long it took. And, but yet we all arrived at the same objective moment. That's, I think, the same thing when we're looking at these different, uh, like the twin paradoxes or things like that. You go, well, yeah, like there's lots of weird stuff that gravity and moving really fast does to uh, clocks or your internal clock, your body. Um, but we're still all in the same objective cosmic time. Like it's not like we're doing some weird sci-fi kind of stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. I think a lot of people would want to take what, what you said about this subjective idea mm-hmm. of time as um, reading that as it's it simply... Uh, an emotional relation to time or mm-hmm. a, a relation of preference to time. But it, it sounds like it's a bit more fundamental. It's about how you as a specific thing encounter the time. For instance, we mm-hmm. could also, I assume, say that the the tachyon, which we finally found the word for, there we go. <laughs> um, the tachyon is experiencing a different subjective time. And that's apart from any emotional state of the tachyon. Mm-hmm. So you're using that just to clarify, we're kind of using subjective in that type. Correct. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now we seem to be bumping up to theories of, you know, A, B theory, whatnot, because we're talking about this absolute time in which mm-hmm. events are actually fixed. Uh, do you have a, a view, A theory, B theory? Um, the A theory, B theory distinction has been really fuzzy for a very long time uh, in the, in the, within the philosophy of time literature. And so it's only more recently that I really just want to go, yes, a theory is obviously true. Um, if I define it a particular way, 
what I'm more interested in and what I think most people are interested in is what is supposed to be entailed by the A theory and the B theory, which is a particular ontology of time. So an ontology of time is just about which moments exist. Uh, so if you're a presentist, you say the present, that's the only moment that exists. Past moments no longer exist. They did when they were present, but they're no longer exist. Future moments do not yet exist. Whereas if you're an eternalist, you're going to say all moments on the timeline are objectively real. They all exist. Uh, and so usually when people are talking about A theory versus B theory, that's the real debate that they're interested in is something about the ontology of time, about what moments of time exist. And so I really want to go presentism. That's got to be that's got to be true. Like that seems just really obviously true. Yep. OK, I agree. I, I, I lean towards uh, presentism. What makes a present moment distinct from a, another potential moment? So you discussed time as it's the uh, source of moments, unifies mm -hmm. the timeline, makes change possible. Um, you know, one might, might have thought if you hold to, I guess, an A theory that you would add, it makes the present moment uh, to exist in a way which is unique or something like that, but you, but you didn't. So how oh, exactly yeah. is time interfacing with um, the state of affairs such that there is a privileged present? No, that's actually a really good question. No one's asked me that before, um, which is, yeah, that's, that's so, so kudos. Uh, yeah. So I, what I did was, was I left my definition uh, of time uh, open to being consistent with a bunch of different ontologies of time. Um, but actually in the, in the, in a lot of the Hindu literature on absolute, uh, theory of time, they do say, because they're very committed to their presentism, which I like, uh, they, they do give this specific role to time. They'll say that time just is the thing that makes, uh, all these, all this stuff exist at the present. So they, they, they build that into their theory. Uh, and I could do that. Um, and I would prefer to do that, but I just don't. And so that way, you know, I can try to make everybody happy and all the philosophers can get on side with my, uh, with my theory of time. Um. But yeah, so what you would do, just the simple fix would just go, it's the source of moments and it's the source of, you know, why anything exists at the present. That's all you got to do, just throw that extra little clause in there. Um, so if you're a presentist, you're saying anything that exists, exists at the present. It can't exist any other moment. So, so if God's time, uh, God's just making stuff exist. When? Right now. He's making stuff exist right now. Not, yeah. not then, not henceforth, right now. Well, I'll, I'll let you kind of pick which direction we go. So option one mm -hmm. is um, you've referenced the Hindu tradition a variety of times. I find mm -hmm. that's interesting. <laughs> Probably the only person I've talked to has referenced the Hindu intellectual tradition with this amount of frequency. Um, so I'd be interested to see how exactly you entered into that and what you found. Um, basically, explore that with us. Um, the other option is kind of circling back to talking about um, time as something which if eternally existent and uncreated um, would have to be, it seems you're saying would have to be identical or part of God. Um, I, I'd be interested to see why you think that that would be necessarily entailed. Um, thinkers like Aquinas, for example, would say that um, we could accept that there are necessary beings, but ones which are necessary through another and I could see somebody simply classifying time as, yes, necessary being, mm -hmm, does all the things you say, um, but it's necessary through another. It's necessary through God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we can so, do both, so pick which one you, Let's do both. Let's do both. Yeah. Pick which one do you want to hit first? So the reason I got interested in the Hindu tradition is actually a broader issue. Um, for my current book project, I'm, my first book was on the called The End of the Timeless God. So I argue God cannot be timeless. If anything like Christianity is true, God cannot be timeless. 
So that leaves the question of, well, what does it mean to say God's temporal? Well, that's a really messy issue. And so it's like, there's nobody's really cleaned that up. So the current book I'm, I'm finishing up writing is, is just looking at that going, if you want to say God's temporal, what are your options? Uh, and I'm looking at different models of God and different problems that you might face to try to see how different models of God will address those questions and deal with those problems. And what's the name of that book so people can, can buy so, it and put it on the well, book? The working title is From Divine Time Maker to Divine Watchmaker. Um, hopefully the oh. publisher will not suggest a different uh, book title, but that happens because the first book title was originally uh, the, the Death of the Timeless God. And then they're like, no, no, no. You know, it, <laughs> that sounds like the Death of God movement. And I was Nietzsche. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, who even thinks of Nietzsche anymore? But then I found then I met someone uh, like a day later uh, who actually does do that. I was like, oh, this is still a project. OK, cool. Um, anyway, so moving swiftly on. Uh, Part of what I was interested in was looking at different uh, religious traditions to see how do they address issues related to God, time, creation, providence. Uh, and are they looking at similar problems? Do they notice problems that the Christian tradition did not notice? Uh, and, and when I started looking into that, I discovered a whole host of philosophical and theological debates that were happening, a lot more nuance to these debates than I realized, because the Christian tradition is one very uh, interesting tradition, but we didn't consider certain avenues and other like Islamic and, uh, and Hindu traditions, they did. Uh, they looked at some other avenues. And so I was like, Ooh, that's fascinating. Um, so that's kind of how I got interested in it was just trying to figure out more about ways God could relate to the world. Uh, and, and so then when from there to get to the second point that you wanted to ask about God's in space time and what if time necessarily exists and, and all this. Yeah. There was a huge debate about this in the Islamic tradition and in the Hindu tradition. Uh, to say, what if time just is this eternal uncaused substance that exists completely independent of God? And there's a lot of different people in the Islamic and the Hindu tradition who do say that. Uh, there's this debate, though. The, here's the issue that comes up is, well, if God is the source of all things, if he really is um, like the foundation of reality, then why would I say that time is this eternal uncaused substance? And so for Sharomani in the Hindu tradition, he's just like, yeah, that's a serious problem. Whereas there's this guy named Al-Razi in the Islamic tradition, and he goes, no, that's no problem. Uh, God's just not the foundation of all of reality. He's just the foundation of most of reality. Oh, that seems and, like a problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Al-Razi is a really crazy guy. He's interesting because he, he annoys, he, he, he ticks off everyone, including uh, like uh, Maimonides and a bunch of other people in the Western tradition. So he's just like... He's just very much like a gadfly. He's just really annoying everyone with his views. Um, but I want to go, no, no, no. God's, God's got to be the foundation of reality. That's part of what it means to be God. I don't know the timeline for him, but I'd imagine that like uh, Avicenna would just like two-footed kick that man. I can't remember if he was contemporary with Avicenna or not. I, I've just I've just blanked on that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's super controversial. Um, he's got these fascinating views. Uh, but but anyway, I, I, I am convinced that like just what it means to be God is that you are perfect and you are the foundation of reality. And then from there, you've got debates about what does it mean to be perfect and how are you the foundation of reality? But that's, I want to say that's part of God. So you could not have time as this eternal uncaused substance. What you could do, uh, which is what some people do in, in a lot of different uh, the religious traditions, is they'll say, yeah, God does eternally cause time to exist. So time is a substance, but it's eternally caused to exist, uh, which is similar to like, like this kind of Avicenna view where you could have things that necessarily and eternally exist, but through another, like that's a view that you could have. Um, but what Sharomani does is he looks at some views like that and he just goes, this is just ontologically bloated. 
Like you got too much, like too many eternal things just like floating around in your ontology. Like, come on, come on. Now let's just take Occam's razor, except you didn't know who Occam was. Cause I think he's, is he, is he, is he I think he's actually contemporary with Occam. Um, but he's, he's just, he's like, no, 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 no. Let's just like cut some of the stuff. Uh, we can make God do everything in our ontology. Uh, we, we don't need all these eternal, uh, substances floating around. And I find that attractive. Uh, I, I really do. I think that's, that's, it's much simpler story. Um, but that's the only, I guess that's the only motivation that I can think of off the top of my head for why you would want to go with that instead of just saying God eternally causes this substance to exist at his time. Okay. Yeah. So, so you'd say it's just a, a simpler ontology. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. For me, it, it would just click that. Yeah. Okay. Time could just be an uncaused substance. I, I would totally entertain that. Um, one reason is I don't know how we would even formulate the question. What, how would time itself come into being? Cause coming into a being yeah. would entail time, right? Yeah. So yeah. I would expect that it would be in a sense, um, eternally existent just because you know it's time yeah and if coming from aristotelian paradigm as kind of touched on earlier i'm totally fine with saying causality um can include uh, um actualizing something's potential for existence and i would say sure god actualizes time's potential for existence from all eternity it's not reasonable to ask what happened before time because that would entail time yeah um poof bob's your uncle <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> okay so um so it sounds like the, the simpler ontology is is saying well we could just include that into the nature of god mm. it, of course i wouldn't do that because of design, divine simplicity i don't see how that would be compatible you don't seem to have that hang up um so is is that's the only motivation you, there's no reason not to include it it's Occam's razor would say it's simpler, therefore we should include it, or is there... Yeah, I could give a little bit more. Um, okay, let's, let's, so, yeah. I'd like to hear. Yeah, so if you make time really fundamental to the nature of God, then you really are saying that God is the ultimate explanation for reality. It gives you more explanatory power. And so here's why. Uh, so it seems like without time, you cannot have causation or change, because causes are prior to their effects. Uh, and so that's already assuming some kind of temporality, some sort of before and after okay do you uh, i'm sorry to stop mm -hmm. you in between yeah, yeah. would you reject uh simultaneity with with cause and effect yeah i, I find that just uh just Interesting. deeply counterintuitive i know like some people want to be like oh like you know like the eternal foot in the sand like you mentioned earlier and i just want to go no 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 it's not causation um so causation is uh is is causes are always before their effects and you might be like, oh, well, they're ontologically. And I'm like, no, that's, that's, you're just playing with words. Uh, causes are before their effects. Um, and this is a very intuitive principle that is affirmed very widely throughout most of the Western and uh, Eastern traditions. Um, and it's, so it is definitely the majority intuition. You can push back on it, of course, but it's, it's definitely a very, very prominent intuition. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, when we're looking at time being a part of the nature of God, I think it's adding more explanatory power to what God explains in our ontology and in our story of the world. So you can account for why causes are always before their effects. You can account for just causation as whole. You can explain why change is even possible. Whereas I think if you want to say God's timeless, it's really difficult to figure out how God explains how change is possible because a timeless and immutable being cannot possibly change. And so how could a timeless being produce anything and then also produce things that can change? Whereas if time and God are, well, the same thing, uh, well, then you can go, well, it's just part of the nature of time to make things 
change and it can change itself uh, because it's got power and freedom. And, you know, so, so you get more explanatory power, I think, on this kind of view. So it's not just simple. It's also got a lot of explanatory power. Okay. Um, well, backtrack just a, a little yeah. bit here, but maybe a t- 20 second rewind there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about, um, you suggested an issue with an, a timeless God creating creatures, which are temporal. Is that yes. what you were, you were saying? Yeah. Can, can you explain? Okay. So, cause the first thing that pops to mind is, oh, analogy time. Of course, let's say sure, we sure. have a, an infinite sequence of numbers, an infinite timeline. Could that um produce uh finite sequences i would say yeah yeah no of course like that would be like the perfect thing to create as many finite sequences as you want you could eternally draw them out of this infinite sequence um yeah that's not an issue could an infinite sequence produce finite sequences right, but, like we could pull out a few so let's say the set of oh, oh okay so infinite. i could pull out one two, them out. Three. Right. Sure. Like we, we could say that this could this could be the cause of uh, sequences which are are smaller um, yeah. because we're basically starting from something which is unlimited and saying, boy, sure, something that's unlimited and can cause existence could certainly cause a limited type of existence. And temporality seems to be a limited type of existence. Yeah, I deny that these are, are limits, um, but okay. Because because I think we're using limits in a really kind of fuzzy sort of way there. But but the issue is, can can a timeless being pull things out of an infinite potential uh, number of uh, moments? Uh, and and the, and I don't and I don't think that's possible. No one's been able to show how that that is possible. There's been a lot of assertions throughout uh, the Western tradition, but there's no nobody's actually like shown how that's possible. Um, so so yeah, that's 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 the that's the big question. So I, I assume that a lot of theists in general have been interested in in this paper. Have you got any uh, these books, these papers, all, all mm-hmm. the stuff that you've done? Um, have you got any uh, atheists, agnostics who've come in and accused you of making a God of the gaps argument here? And if so, no. how do you respond? That's, a, that's an interesting question. No. No. Yeah, no, one, no one's accused me of that yet. Um, most people just go, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I guess philosophy time is really hard. Uh, and God stuff is also really hard to think about. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well, on, yeah. on behalf of them, let me put on my atheist Yeah, go hat. for it. Yeah. I don't know. It's got like, you know, crazy demon symbols and stuff. Um, <laughs> you're just saying that this unifies the timeline, that it's the source of moments. You just don't know what the source of moments is. So you're just saying God. You don't know what unifies the timeline. You're just saying God. And you don't know what makes change possible. So you're just saying God. We have physics to tell us mm. how changes come about. Um, we would say the source of moments is a uh, four-dimensional time-space um, manifold, and that what unifies the timeline is what unifies anything. It's the relation of one thing to another physically, not in three dimensions, but in the fourth. So you're just trying to insert God when we can totally disprove this with science. Mm-hmm. There you go. That was my that was my punk middle schooler. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, so there's two premises in there that I would reject. One is, uh, I don't know what it is, so therefore I put God in there. And I'd be like, well, no, I, I do know what it is. It's, it's God. Um, and and why do, I, why do I not know it? Like, you didn't give me a reason for that. Uh, the second issue is uh, physics explains things. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Uh, physics doesn't explain change. Uh, that's like a big issue in the philosophy of physics is how do we account for change? Because uh, the physics just, just gives you some numbers. Um, and then also you talked about the space-time manifold, and I'm going to go well. Space-time manifold, like that's that's false. Uh, we know it's false uh, because it contradicts quantum mechanics. So there's a bunch of theories in quantum mechanics where space and time are not the same object; they come apart entirely. Uh, so 
sure. Yeah. Um, you could explain things with a false physics, a physics that we all know is false and a physics that physicists are actively trying to replace. You could do that all day long if you want. I, I, I see that as a dead end. Um, so I, yeah, I, I just, I just, I'll again, shrug my shoulders and go, meh. So what? I love it. Those are awesome responses. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, just kind of popped up in a, a previous discussion um, was quantum mechanics and how, yeah, I think a lot of us are running around with this like straight relativity theory and sure that can be um, uh, that, that can be four dimensionalism very friendly, but you're right. Quantum mechanics does seem to be putting some of these into question. One thing that I found um, relative and relevant to presentism is that there seems to be an asymmetry um, between uh, w w with wave functions, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this quantum wave function, it collapses, and then it becomes one definitive thing. Mm -hmm. But if we took a true four-dimensionalism, or if we even took a growing block theory, then we have what seems to me a straight contradiction when viewing the same entity. It, it, I don't know. Am I making any sense? <laughs> a little bit of sense. So, yeah. So basically the, the issue you're pointing out is it does seem like uh, on a bunch of different uh, accounts, different theories within quantum mechanics, you can find the present much more easily than you could say on special or general theory, even though there are ways to find the present on both of those theories, but there's, but it's, it's much more easy to find it on um, quantum mechanics. But if you try to throw in like uh, some other ontologies other than presentism, it things might get weird. Is that, is that kind of the worry you were, you were getting at? Yeah. To me, it would seem that if we say that it's true that there's a wave function and then it's mm -hmm. true that it collapsed and that the wave function was not a hidden variable, then if we look back on it from the future to the past and say, ah, that wave function was a hidden variable, well, that's just false. So if there's a, uh, if we don't accept a distinction um, between a present moment and say a past or a future moment, then I don't see how we we can avoid saying that what it collapses to just is that thing, right? Because the present yeah. moment is what's going on with the wave function. If we reject the present moment, we reject the wave function, we reject the wave function, then we're, we're basically consigned to saying that this was either a hidden variable or it was this end state from alternative, which quantum mechanics seems to say is false. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I find this intuitive, but when we start taking um, these wave functions to be like real things in the world, I, I start to I start to want to just bow out and be like, I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't take this uh, realistically. Uh, I, I, like when it comes to a lot of different issues in fundamental physics, I want to be an instrumentalist, which is to say this gives us really useful predictions, but they're not doing a good job of describing reality. Um, so so, when if, so I, I'm just a bit skeptical of how realistic I want to take the wave function. Uh, do I want to say it's just a description of the ways uh, different like uh, objects could go, do, like trajectories of different things or different potentialities that could exist? Sure, that's cool. Uh, if I want to take it as like the, the wave function is really like this physical thing in the world, I'm like, that feels, I don't know, that feels kind of weird to me. So mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I just don't know what to do. I just, I'm, yeah, I'm just not inclined to go with a realist approach to a lot of the, uh, the wave function stuff. Cool. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think that's that's perfectly reasonable. Again, as I've said before, 
I don't have a settled view on philosophy of time. I told a story there. I don't know if I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting thinking about. Well, certainly, so, well you know, so, sorry to interrupt, but like what's, what's funny is most of the, the majority of physicists who were developing quantum mechanics for the longest time, they were also uh, anti-realist. They were also instrumentalist. They thought if you took this in a realistic way, you were just nuts. And so when David Baum oh. tried to take it as a realist, they just pushed him out of the academy. Uh, wow. So... So yeah, it's so 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 the history of of, of contemporary physics is just filled with anti-realist, and there's a bunch of them still running around today. Like most physicists, when you ask them questions uh, about like you know is this is this way it is, and they're like just just shut up and calculate, just just shut up and calculate. <laughs> yeah, okay. that, no, that's an awesome point. I th I think people assume that physicists are these like hard-nosed guys who say, oh, we know what's real. You know, mm -hmm. we're we're really dealing with the real stuff. And the fact is. No, not really. If you get a bunch of physicists in a room and you ask them, oh, I don't know, is uh, electromagnetic uh, fields, are they real or not? You're going to get different answers. Some yes. are going to say it seems to house energy. So, yeah, it's real. Others are going to say, no, it's just a way of calculating the effect of one object, which produces the quote unquote field vis-a-vis um, -vis another. Um, yeah, there's a lot of debate about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's pretty darn tough to settle. And, and oh, yeah. if it is settled, I'd say it's settled philosophically. Because mm -hmm. these are philosophical questions, because what you're what you're pointing out is uh, something that Jeff Kapersky points out. Uh, so he's a philosopher of physics. And he says, you have you the physics, contemporary physics is a patchwork. Uh, there's all these different theories that we don't know how they could fit together. And you have to be an anti-realist or an instrumentalist about something in the patchwork because they don't all fit together. Which one do you want to be an instrumentalist about? Uh, take your pick and that's gonna be a philosophical decision yeah that's interesting i, I think it was it was a, a heisenberg and his uncertainty principle that guy mm -hmm. um he appealed back to some aristotelian metaphysics and said mm -hmm. hey guys i think we found potential <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. And i think that's i think that's a good point uh, no i i've been you know just kind of banging the aristotle drum all podcast sure. um do you subscribe to that type of metaphysics or something else i i I feel like what, from what I know about you, you're more in the analytical tradition. I am in the analytical tradition, but there's a lot of uh, analytical Aristotelians running around these days. Um, cool. So just being analytic doesn't really tell you much of anything other than that you really like to try to be as clear as you can be and try to give transparent arguments. Um, but yeah, I, there's, uh, there's a, some Aristotelian concepts. I'm like, that sounds cool uh, and really intuitive. So difference between actuality and potentiality. Seems totally cool. Yep, uh, on board with that one. I like. Yeah, that yeah. It's, I mean, it just seems obvious. Uh, the idea that things have powers. Um, yeah, totally cool. Uh, that, that all sounds really great. Uh, virtues. Uh, that, that seems cool too. I like this. Forms. I don't know what. Oh, I don't know yeah. what a form is. Um, and no one's been able to tell me. And Eric Olson, uh, his his introduction to um, uh, like personal ontology, like uh, like what am I? Like when when you look at a human person, what is a human person? Mm -hmm. He has this brief paragraph where he looks at hylomorphism, and he just goes, "It's just mysterious to me. I don't know what they're saying." And he just moves on. And that's all he gives to to hylomorphism. And I'm like, that's absolutely right. I cannot figure out what you guys are saying um, uh, with this form and matter stuff. Like, that's, I, I, just, I just have no use for forms. Uh, and then causes, I want to say, well, yeah, there's definitely efficient causation. That's, 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 that seems right. But material, is material, is that really a cause? That doesn't sound like, it sounds like I'm just talking in a funny way there. Uh, and like final cause, I, I mean, agents acts for reasons. That seems right to me, but do you want to talk about that being a cause? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I don't know if reasons are causes. Um, so there's a bunch of different Aristotelian ideas that I can get on board with other things. And when I go, I, I can't have this, um, 
and I could go on and on, but yeah, but that's yeah, that's the big idea is I can take some stuff, but not all of it. Oh, that's really interesting. It, it sounds like as you were talking about the classic four causes, that if you accepted um, form and therefore formal causality, then that should imply finality and make the relevant distinctions between an existing thing, you know, form and matter, and therefore you might accept material causation. So it really does seem like it's the form issue. Um, I, you're right. It's really hard to define. The best ways I've heard it defined are almost um, kind of like an apophatic approach, mm-hmm. saying we, we have a, 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 a Ryan Mullins, and uh, we know he's material, and that material could be um, creating, I don't know your general size, but let's say 16 cats. Um, but what <laughs> distinguishes him, this material, from those 16 cats, um, whatever that is, is the form. Right? It, 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 I like that approach because it basically is subtracting things out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right that it's not offering a huge positive definition. I think it's interesting you said that you accept these um, um, it powers because that's very closely tied to the form of the thing. In fact, that's supposed to be the mark of a substantial form is a novel causal power irreducible to its parts. So I know I'm rambling a bit, <laughs> but um, how do you understand the powers of a substance without um, well, actually, you're probably not accepting the Aristotelian idea of substance because that entails form. So what do you do with powers? Yeah, substances uh, cannot exist without having some kind of property. I mean, so this is like a Descartes that makes this claim. And I'm like, yeah, seems right. Um, every substance has a pow- has some kind of property. There's a, because it has an essence, a thing that it is, uh, the, the kind of thing that it is. Uh, and then now if you tell me, well, the form is the thing that makes it have its essence. And I'm like, well, what is that? form and you're like well we don't really know um and you kind of like started subtracting a bunch of stuff and i want to just subtract that too and go like substances just have essences full stop i like i don't i don't need any there's nothing else to explain that this is nothing for the form to explain uh and on some accounts of forms forms just look like they just are powers uh because i've seen some uh, some thomists uh make this kind of claim and i'm like well if that's the case then i don't need forms anymore i just need the powers um so if it's apophatic, then I don't know what I'm, I don't need it. If it's just powers, then I'm like, well, I've already got powers, so I don't need it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't really know where else to go. Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally, you know, in the Thomistic framework, they talk about how an essence in it of itself really can't be known. So it yeah. sounds like they're certainly in agreement with you there. And yeah, exactly what you're saying. We know them based on their their causal powers. Yeah, you're talking to somebody who's a big fan of Aquinas's fourth way. <laughs> mm-hmm, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So um, the distinction I always like to make is people come to that way and other discussions about what forms do mm-hmm. with, uh, with efficient causality in their mind. And they also come to it with the, like a temporal causality in their mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's the right way to to look at that if you're going to understand it in the Thomistic way. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, I, I think of it more like there's an Excel spreadsheet and you <laughs> and you write the word Ryan mm-hmm. and you make this giant thing and it references that and it says Ryan. So therefore, the Ryanness of every place that there is Ryanness is ultimately finding its ontological referent in whatever defines that cell. We do know that things are defined 
and you offer the example of, well, things have different powers. Therefore, we have an ontological referent mm-hmm. that, that that informs whatever we have, have built out in our, our spreadsheet. Yeah, it sounds really cool, but you could tell the whole story without forms. And actually, you just did tell the whole story without forms. So that sounds, sounds fine to me. Well, the powers are coming from somewhere. And again, this yeah. is kind of the apophatic approach. Mm-hmm. Is it from the matter alone? Or is there something in addition to the matter? If the matter is shared in common with a variety of other things with different powers, mm-hmm. there seems to be some type of explanatory principle that separates the two. I agree. I, I'm a little fuzzy on what that would be. And I think that the Thomistic tradition is fuzzy on what exactly that is. But we would just simply give whatever that thing is, which separates the um, causal powers of things arranged in certain ways or, or, or having a mode of being in one way rather than another. We would call that um, a form. So just looking for like a principle of individuation. Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Um, well, ooh, I, I'd slow down on that one because traditionally it's the material that individuates. So we have the form yeah. of dogness and then material individuates it to the variety of dogs. So I would say it's kind of the other way around in that it's the principle of unity amongst a variety of things that have similar causal powers, say dogness or, Mm. you know, the negativity associated with an electron. Well, yeah, that's just ultimately we would say prime matter, but whatever puts them in common such that they act in a predictable way, whatever that thing is, and again, not in an efficient causal story, but in more of that kind of ontological referent way, Mm. whereby they just get this type of nature from a nature, right? We need something that simply is a nature kind of if we found things which were salty that would point us to the fact that something contains within its nature the reason for its own saltiness and that would mm-hmm. just be salt right yeah um yeah, yeah so I, I, I see what you're getting at <laughs> it's okay so here's here's I can, I can i think briefly explain why uh the intuitions that i have and why i don't see any need for forms um so i, th- I think that individuation like any sort of principle of individuation is a primitive notion um so i think it's fundamental uh so god exists and it's just an individual thing um couldn't be anything else uh when i look at a bunch of non-physical things like propositions numbers they're all individuated as well i don't need material things to individuate any of these uh abstracta um if god creates a bunch of immaterial souls Again, I don't need any uh, physical stuff to individuate them because individuation is a primitive notion. It just attaches to things. Um, so yeah, I've got all these other things to... So I've, I've, that's right. my intuition. So I'm like, where would the form come in because I've already got individuation as yeah, this you're, primitive notion? So you're totally right. And I kind of left off an explanation. We should probably circle back to time at some point. <laughs> so <laughs> the Thomistic tradition would say yes to everything you said, That, uh, but it would also say we can individuate uh, individuate dogs based on the material with a common nature. But when you give those other examples like human souls, or we could add in angels or let's say numbers, well, they're differentiated simply because they are different forms. One is different from two is different from three. They don't need to be differentiated by material like two dogs sharing the same form. So yeah, no, I, I think, 
totally compatible with with where we're at there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you want to circle back to time though? Yeah. What, what, yeah. Were we talking about time? I think we were. <laughs> at some point we were. Yeah. Oh my goodness, where <laughs> on earth did we did we leave off? We talked about the Hinduism. We talked about sensorialism. I'm sure you have some things which are kind of lingering in your mind if you want to uh, hit some of those things that you feel like you haven't expressed fully yes. yet. So what we were what we were talking about before was I was making the claim that if you say God uh, is time or that time is an attribute of God, it gives you a lot more explanatory power than uh, denying that time is an attribute of God. Uh, And so part of the issue we got into was if a timeless being can cause or bring about temporal things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I didn't give enough uh, justification for that statement to say, like, you just can't do it. Um, Other than I've looked at all the accounts uh, across across the the world's traditions, and there's just assertions and no explanations. Um, So let me give you some examples of this. So the traditional doctrine within the Christian tradition is uh, of creation is creation ex nihilo. Uh, and so creation ex nihilo, uh, says that, that God, uh, causes the universe to begin to exist. Okay. And so, and so what you got to understand is prior to Christianity, there's a very, uh, clear and consistent definition of what it means for something to begin to exist. And what that is, is it's preceded by a state of non-existence. And so there's this question that pops up around the time of Plato, uh, that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam inherit, uh, which is if God makes the universe begin to exist, that means there's some state of affairs where God exists by himself and then exists with a bunch of stuff. Uh, because again, to begin to exist is to be preceded by non-existence. And so there's all these kind of fun questions that pop up, like what was God doing before he created the universe? Uh, why did God take so long to create the universe? Because it's all assuming that if God creates a universe ex nihilo, that the universe begins to exist and there's a state of affairs, prior state of affairs where God exists by himself. Now, um, all those questions about what was God doing before, why did he take so long, they presuppose a particular problem, which is this. If God is timeless and immutable, you, it looks like you've got God all alone and then God with a bunch of stuff. And that's a change. And how are you going to have a timeless being uh, you know, anymore? Because he's, he's changed. He's gone from existing alone to existing with stuff. Uh, and this is actually a common objection uh, throughout the Western tradition against creation ex nihilo. So Proclus runs this kind of objection against uh, the Christians going, you guys are nuts. You've got God all alone, then God was stuff. Well, then God's going to change. Well, then God's not going to be perfect. Uh, so God's going to be created by something else. And you're like, whoa, whoa, Proclus, like slow down, slow down, slow down. <laughs> you know, like. uh, and so John Philoponus gives some kind of responses that I don't find particularly compelling um, because it basically boils down to God just does create and he doesn't change. Is, is what his response boils down to. It's just kind of this assertion. And you're like, well, but how does he not change? Because he goes from all alone to existing with a bunch of stuff. So Philoponus doesn't really give a, an answer other than he just doesn't change. Um, what Augustine tries to do, uh, and then you see this in Aquinas as well, is to say God doesn't change because he doesn't acquire a, a new property. He doesn't acquire a relational property. So Augustine's really explicit about this. He says God does not acquire relational properties like creator. Because if you're not creating and then you create, well, you'd, re- you'd acquire the relational property of creator. And so Augustine's like, we don't want that. We don't want that. So he looked at a bunch of different relational properties like master and Lord and, and whatnot. And he goes, all of these are properties that God does not have because God does not stand in a real relation to the universe. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So God doesn't have any relational properties. So he doesn't change in his relationship uh, to anything. Um, and that's supposed to somehow explain how God's all alone and then God exists with a bunch of cosmic stuff. Uh, two things. 
one that doesn't explain anything uh it just tells you that god doesn't change um but at least specifies the in some sense the way god doesn't change he doesn't undergo relational change and you're like okay i don't see how you're getting there but cool fine so just, i'll just grant that here's where things get weird though so classic examples uh, of of uh, real relationships are knower to known and uh, cause to effect so those are all examples of classic classic examples uh, that are built into Augustine and Aquinas's explanations of the differences between real relations and non-real relations. So here's what you have to say, though, if God does not stand in a real relation to the universe. You have to say God does not know the universe because that's a real relationship. And you have to say that God does not cause the universe because that's also a classic example of a real relationship. Well, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, Aristotle's going to be fine with that. But if you're Augustine or Aquinas, you're not going to be happy with that. You're going to say, no, God is the cause of the universe, and God does know the universe. And these are problems that the the, West, the entire Western tradition, not just uh, Christianity, but Judaism and Islam, they've they've really struggled with these issues of trying to figure out, well, crap, we, we really got to say God is the cause of the universe, and he really does know the universe. But how do we do that with these Aristotelian assumptions? And how do we do that if we're going to say God's not really related to the universe? So it's it's I think it's a mess. Yeah, you've you've opened up so many delightful cans of worms. <laughs> I yeah, kind of I often like, do. Like, the, yeah, I wish this was like the start of our podcast. Not mm -hmm. right, awesome, right? Um, I mean, just things which I know that have been brought up, and I mm -hmm. I wish we could get into all of them. We kind of can. We said before the interview that this is uh, going to be a ten-hour interview with a free <laughs> intermission in between. So yeah. we'll see. Um, one is. Uh, the idea of God is alone and then there's the universe, mm -hmm. right? It, it, right? That seems to be smuggling in the idea that there's just like this, this time in which God is, is embedded such mm -hmm. that we can have a God and then. Yeah. And yet if we say that time was created with the universe, a la say St. Augustine, then we'll, we'll know that just there is no alone and then mm -hmm. there's simply God. Oh, and there's a first moment of creation, and God is not in the time, nor is he in the creation. Yeah, I see what you're saying, um, but it's not quite right to what Augustine actually says. So Augustine does say time begins with creation, and it's because right. it's created. Um, but Augustine doesn't deny that there's this state of affairs where God exists all alone. He just says it's a timeless one. It's not a temporal one, but it's a timeless state of affairs. Right. And you see this constantly throughout. Boethius repeats it, where, he's, where he talks about uh, the triune God all alone uh prior to creating and he says it's a timeless state of affairs but he's like but it's prior uh and so there's this constant uh like no one wants to reject this assumption right right uh, it's not temporally prior it's in, a it's a like, timeless state of affairs yeah right so right, that's what right. you see He's saying that time a sequence of events one and then another such that Correct. there is change that begins with the universe but they're saying that the universe is not co-eternal with god therefore we can talk about a beginning because it has a first moment god does not have a first moment and is that would that be accurate it's what they're saying? part of the story yeah but again since they're saying what it means to begin uh, is that you're you're preceded by non a state of non-existence and so what what a lot of christians and muslims and some jews because jews are other than Maimonides, they're not super keen on uh like simplicity and timelessness and this sort of stuff um uh, so, but they're all assuming, yeah, but there's there's well, the state of affairs that, that's preceded uh, is a timeless state of affairs. So they're still having this preceding state of affairs where God is all alone. Right. And that that type of preceding, we typically think of it in a time-based concept, like there's a this right. and there's a then. 
And that also seems to be implying a common context for God and creation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that would be traditionally rejected also. Oh, no. Um, I mean, sure, when you get to like Aquinas, you get all this analogy stuff. But prior to that, like, no, I mean, this is no one's affirming doctrine of analogy before that. Um, You might see some things that are in the neighborhood. But yet, no, when Aquinas introduces analogy, it's super controversial. Um, And people even reject it after that. Like like Scotus, for instance, is like, I don't like this analogy nonsense. Um, So, yeah, because certainly God is on the top of the great chain of being in the classical tradition. Uh, So there's a context in which god and and everything else are all in reality god's the foundation of it he's the greatest possible being everything else was participating in his greatness um yeah yeah it's all it's all part of the same reality so i'm not terribly familiar with anybody who's talked about what that context would be but you seem Mm -hmm. to be saying that that previous thinkers believe that there was a common context in which god and the universe existed has yeah. anybody spelled out what that context is? And certainly we would have to say, where did the context come from? Was that not caused by God? Was that not, quote unquote, preceded by God? I, I'm not familiar with that in the tradition. Oh, it's, it's well, so what you've got to do is you've got to stop looking at the tradition from a Thomistic point of view and, pre, and for like presupposing everyone was a Thomist. This is something I, I actually encounter quite a bit. Um, I, I find it just really odd that people, they they seem to like just lose the ability to read the the great tradition um, when they start throwing around doctrine of analogy. Uh, so the question of like, how do they explain the context? They, they just assume it. It, it. There just is the context. God is at is is the at the top of the great chain of being, uh, and everything else is a participation in God. Uh, everything else is created by God. And it's participating in God. That just is the context. Um, I don't I don't know what it would mean to explain the context other than to just state that just is the context. Okay, I guess I'm kind of wondering what we mean by context. Obviously, we're not saying it's a, a place, right? It's not sure. like God's over there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm unclear. Do we mean a common context in that they're both set in a timeline? But Oh, right. Okay. In uh, what respect yeah. is this a a context? Like, like what is the yeah. substance of this context? Yeah, so the timeline thing is, I I think that this is a constant problem throughout the entire Western tradition of trying to figure out how God is not, but also is in the timeline. And, and you just get all these contradictory kind of, kind of states. Um, so here's an example of this. Uh, so I'll stick with Aquinas on this one. Um, so Aquinas wants to go, God is omnipresent. Uh, come on, we can't deny God's omnipresent. And you're like, cool. And he's also like, present only moment that exists. You're like, yep, cool, cool, cool. Uh, you know, everyone, we all know this Aquinas. What, what are you talking about here? He's like, well, but I, I got to say that when things exist, when things exist, uh, they sync up with God's timeless present. And when they no longer exist, they don't sync up with God's timeless present. And I'm like, cool. Well, now it looks like I've got God changing constantly. God's syncing up with a bunch of different stuff and then that stuff no longer exists. And then God's syncing up with the other stuff. Well, that stuff no longer exists. And then God, you know, and it's all these and thens and thens and thens. Uh, and Aquinas is like, well, but God's not really related. And I'm like, well, then how are you getting this syncing up? Uh, so I, I feel like there's just this constant conflict uh, between trying to figure out how you make the timeless God fit with a temporal world. And no one really is able to iron out all the details uh, because they constantly uh, encounter some kind of contradiction somewhere in their system. And so that's one area where uh, where a lot of the contradictions pop up is with uh, omnipresence because they want God to be really present now, fully present now, 
and say that now is a real feature of reality. Oh, but crap, we can't say he's actually now because he doesn't have temporal location. Uh, okay, so God doesn't exist now. Oh, gosh, that sounds like atheism. We can't say <laughs> that. So like, it's just this constant like hand-wringing. And I'm like, okay, well, wouldn't it be just easier if you just got rid of the timeless part? Because then you don't have this contradiction. Uh, that's, that's yeah, that's just kind of where I'm at. Okay, so, so what I'm surprised you didn't reference somewhere in there is the discussion of Cambridge properties. The oh, that's the relational that, properties. Those uh, yeah, I already talked about those. So, so, so we're saying that God, quote unquote, syncs up with creation or whatever. Yep. Um, I, I don't understand why that would be a change in God any more than if you go over to stand by my left and then stand to my right. Yep. I haven't changed at all. You've you've changed in relation to me, but I don't see how that would be that would be a change. Likewise, if if we take that story of time and creation is syncing up to God in this way, well, sure, mm -hmm. yeah, creation's changeable. God doesn't yeah. have to be simply new orientation vis-a-vis -vis God. What's the issue with that? Yeah, so two issues. One, if you are able to undergo relational changes, you are a being in time. And this is what Augustine realized uh, very early on, and that's what motivates his denial that God is really related to the universe. That's what motivates Augustine saying, we cannot say that God is really related to the universe, uh, is in order to deny these relational changes. Um, so when contemporary Thomas like Ed Fazer go, oh, it's just relational changes, I'm like, you're just going against what the actual classical tradition says, which is God can't undergo relational changes. It's super explicit. Um, second, uh, omnipresence isn't going to be a mere relational or Cambridge change, because what it means to be omnipresent is to mean that you uh, are causing all that stuff to exist, and you know that all of that stuff exists. So God is omnipresent via knowledge and power. Now, again, what I talked about earlier is classic examples that, uh, that Aquinas explicitly affirms that are examples of real relations are nowhere to known and cause to effect. And you have both of those in omnipresence. So God is going to have to be really related because he knows that he's causing these things to exist. Uh, so you can't talk about Cambridge changes here because that just makes no sense because we're talking about real relations, uh, which are causing and knowing. Okay. It, yeah, that seems... So when I come to know, let's say I, I look over at a, at a tree... Mm -hmm. so I go from not knowing the tree to knowing the tree, right? Yep. Um, but we can say a few things about this. One is um, we're, for my part, we're discussing a temporal sequence, yep. which the tradition would certainly reject of God. Yep. And second, there seems to be a causal arrow from the tree to me, right? It, I've come to know it if I do mm -hmm. this in this temporal step. But there's no, I, I don't understand why there would be any change in the tree. Are we just saying, well, now it is a known tree and that is the change such that there's what? a new thing that we can ascribe to it? No, what you're doing is uh, confusing. So the analogies that people use in these cases, uh, they're fudging because they're making God the tree. But that's not what's going on in omnipresence. God is not the tree. God is the knower and the causer. The tree is not the knower and the causer in this, in this scenario. You are the knower. Uh, in this in this uh, tree scenario. So you undergo a change because you are really related to the tree in this case. Well, God is supposed to be, he ought to be really related to anything that he's causing to exist because causing is a real relation. And he ought to be really related to anything that he knows exists because knowing is a real relation. And okay, in omnipresence, yeah. you've got both of those. So the tree analogy is going to be disanalogous because it's assuming that the tree isn't causing uh, and isn't knowing. And that's not the case with a omnipresent God. Yeah, that's fair. So I, I kind of broke that into the two parts and they're yeah. located one in the tree and one in yeah, the knower. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think you're right that that although those 
examples we, we could use as analogy, it is a little mixed up when we're talking about God and creation. So I guess a better analogy would be if you are it, like the author analogy. So we imagine a story. We are wholly causing this story. Actually, can I stop you on this one too? Uh, sorry, because sure. here's why. Um, so when you give the author analogy, you're explaining how a temporal agent writes a temporal story. So the analogy breaks down at the exact point you need it to illuminate, which is how a timeless being brings about temporal effects. Um, so, so all these analogies break down because they, they never illuminate where they're supposed to, which is how a timeless being can bring about temporal effects. And the author analogy is a temporal agent bringing about temporal things. So if, uh, yeah, I'm unclear why that's a, why that itself is a, if it is a difficulty. So if we have this author who just exists eternally, whatever mm -hmm. eternally is being defined as, right? Um, well, yeah, well, you got to define it to make the analogy sure. good, right? Okay, in, in a la Boethius, right? Okay, um, so it's a timeless being. Sure. And yep. um, he has some type of uh, he has some type of, of, of thought, and that yep. thought is inclusive of all reality, and such that this thing then has a first moment. This creation then has a first moment, mm -hmm. um, and then we would count time in relation to the first moment, um, and, and then there we have our, our timeline internal to that thought. Mm -hmm. A god is then not in a common context with it. Um, but he is present to his entire creation as one timeless, um, one timeless thinker is present to all points of his thought as the cause of it, upholding it and its timeline and the whole shebang. So all you've done is just restated the position. It's not addressed the, the, the different kind of problems. So, okay, so, this, what, so the problems are still going to be. Are we circling uh, back to the, to the problem of contingent knowledge that we seem to have been talking about earlier um, which well, that's a different problem uh, that's a different problem so so the kind of two or two problems we were talking about right now are uh you've got god all alone then god with stuff uh you make that that all alone a timeless thing but how do you how do you all of a sudden bring in a bunch of stuff with god uh without there being a change uh, and then same thing with omnipresence which which is like god's causing and knowing all this stuff to exist and then he lets it go out of existence and then causes some more stuff to come into existence and and on and on and on uh and the and then in the move the tr traditional move uh from people like augustine and aquinas and boethius is to say god's not really related but then when you look at the cases of real relations they are known and caused and god's doing both of those so it can't be that God's not really related. Um, so it's, so that's kind of where we're at. And then you wanted to give these analogies, but all those analogies point in the completely opposite directions of where uh, you need to say for a timeless being, what a, what a timeless God is up to. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at, where we're at, at the, in the conversation at least. Okay. Well, I feel like we've been beating this horse to death. So let me yeah. pivot yeah, a little bit. Sure. Um, you you mentioned earlier how you don't accept the, uh, the the arguments for the possibility of an infinitely old universe or an inf it, it, would you say that they're similar but yet you're saying that God has this type of temporality mm -hmm. how do it, how do you see the arguments for a finite past running with relationship to the universe but not running with relationship to God, who you seem to also identify as somehow temporal. Yeah, no, this is the right, this is the right objection to, to push. Um, so here's what you got to do. So remember what I said earlier about the traditional understanding of what it means to begin to exist. So it means you're preceded by a state of non-existence. So what you do uh, is you say, well, then 
Whoop, you there? You just you just cut out there. You there? Hello? Hello? Yeah, I can Oh, there you go. You're back. Okay. 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 Yes. Yeah, Preceded so... by a moment by a moment of non-assistance is where we where we lost. Okay. So yeah, what it means to begin to exist is you are preceded by a state of non-existence. Okay. Gotcha. So what you do with the first moment, God, uh, all alone, is you say it's a, a moment that never began to exist because you know, God never ceased, he never like uh, did not exist. He's not preceded by non-existence. Sure. So it's first moment. Uh, it's just a single moment. How long did it last? That's that. There's no, there's no length to single moments. Uh, length is a is is a description of multiple moments. Uh, so if God wants to create some stuff, then He's going to bring about the next moment where He does things. Because a moment is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. When things are subsequently otherwise, that's the next moment. Okay. Uh, and so you got the next moment. So God's like, uh, Do I want to do something? Next moment. Yeah, I totally want to do something. Next moment. All right, now I'm doing stuff. Uh, I'm trying to create this universe. And so now you get a sequence. Okay. They've still got a first moment. So it's not an infinite past. It's a finite past. Oh, so you think God had a finite past, but the first moment mm-hmm. is a moment with a, oh, man. <laughs> that never began. That, that never, never began. began? Yeah. I'm okay. Uh, okay. Hang on. And so what, <laughs> here, here's, here's where most people get hung, uh, hung up though, where they can't think it. They keep thinking in terms of if something doesn't begin to exist, then it has to have an infinite uh, series of moments. And I want to go, why? Because what it means to begin to exist is to be preceded by non-existence. God is an eternal being a necessarily existent being. There's not going to be pre- any preceding state of affairs where God doesn't exist. You don't need an infinite number of moments to describe that. You just need a single moment to describe that. And if you're like, oh, I don't like that at all, well, then you can't hold a, a timeless God either because a timeless God exists for a single timeless moment. Uh, and and so if it's a problem for my view, it's going to be a problem for divine timelessness as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I, I, we kind of need to drill into the specific definition of a moment because I think mm-hmm. most listeners would have assumed what you said earlier that well, uh, a moment is like a discrete amount of time or something like that. So, so what do we do? Oh, can no. you kind of expand? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. So again, people are getting hung up on um, the wrong things. So the, so a moment is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. It's a temporal moment. Okay. So we're I'm, not talking about a discrete length of time, correct, nor we're because... talking about the boundary between past and future. We're not good. talking about other of those. So here, yeah, right. This is good. So when you're talking about length of time or moment or like an amount of time, what you're talking about are features of a timeline. You need a series of moments in order to get temporal distance relationships, in order to talk about amounts of time. Um, so yeah, so th- that those are all features of a timeline. But if it's oh, just a single moment, okay. a single moment doesn't have an amount of time. So earlier about an hour and a half ago <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we talked about how uh there are those who collapse time into events correct but it sounds to me and i'd like kind of the clarification here mm-hmm. because i don't think i quite caught it yet how exactly is this moment that you're referencing that isn't the things which i said earlier it's not not an event it sounds like what you're calling the moment is an event Mm-hmm. Yeah, because events are substances having a property at a time. I mean, this is, this is a very standard definition across all the different um, uh, metaphysical textbooks. Uh, and so it's already presupposing time. And what they mean by time is they mean a moment. 
Okay, um, so we should just yeah. say state of state of affairs, and then you added that could have been that can be subsequently otherwise. Well, so uh, states of affairs and events happen at a moment. So a moment is like this. It's like it's like the absolute like you know everything that's happening. Um, so the event of me sitting, well, that's happening right now. Uh, but there's other events happening right now. Okay. Um, so because they're all happening at a moment. Okay. So, so now is a, is a moment, correct? Correct. Okay. But uh, I think we're, we're both presentists yep. and we would say that if now is a moment, and we, I think we also say that now is the boundary between past and future. Am I, I, I think I'm missing something though. Uh, I mean, a lot of people want to say that. I don't know if you have to say that. Um, because you could have a first moment and that wouldn't be a boundary between the past and the future. Okay. Uh, so if that right. was now the first moment, if uh -huh. the first moment was now, yep. we would have, you wouldn't have a past. We so wouldn't have a past. We wouldn't yeah. have a boundary of the past. Okay. Yeah. And then we would just have a boundary to the future. So it'd still be a boundary, but it won't be a boundary line. I, between I feel both. like the boundary language is, is metaphorical because when you're a presentist, what you're saying is everything that exists exists now. Like okay. the present exhausts reality. Um, so the boundary language I always find to be very metaphorical. And this, oh, this is this okay. is a problem in a lot of philosophy of time is so much of our language is metaphorical and we use a lot of spatial metaphors. So this is a spatial metaphor. And so one of the projects I would like to do and I try to do in the forthcoming book is to try to despatialize our talk about time um, because it causes so much confusion. Okay, that yeah, that's very good. So I sounds like we might be uh, I could kind of launch an objection that says, no, if you use this boundary language, you're actually affirming a real future real past. And that's mm -hmm. not actually compatible with presentism. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it's, all right. Okay. Yeah, and I want to go. Well, that's fine, but uh, you're just using some spatial metaphors. Stop using spatial metaphors when we're talking about time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This okay. is something I, I constantly like. Actually, in the Society for Philosophy of Time, there's a few of us who uh, have felt the need to just start scolding people, be like, "No, stop, stop talking about space. We're talking about time here. This is the Society for Philosophy of Time." You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, metaphors can be useful. They um, can be useful, but uh, right. they can also but be confusing. They can so. be misleading, right? Yeah, it's difficult to see where they break down and it where is. they they extend out and extend your knowledge. Finding exactly where that point is difficult. It is, um, such as okay, life. all right, all right. <laughs> so, so, so I know I kind of interrupted you a couple it's times okay. there, and we probably should wrap up on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, oh, where were we? We were talking about why uh, mm -hmm. we can have this first moment as we've been defining it. Mm -hmm. with relation to a temporal God, mm -hmm. and yet we can't have a similar moment with relation to a, uh, a universe. Mm. Right? Oh, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's where we were a while ago. And then we kind right. of Right. Yeah. Trip. So if you say the universe begins to exist, which I, I, I think we've got good reasons for thinking the universe begins to exist. Okay. And, where, and do you mean by that just scientific reasons or also philosophical? Philosophical reasons as well. Okay. Um, and then we're kind of dealing with in what ways do those philosophical reasons not then extend to what we were talking about? God. Correct. So yeah. I, I guess we're kind of exactly. circling back to this, this quote unquote first moment moment exactly yeah so this is where you get with most cosmological arguments um some different teleological arguments you always get back to this necessary being that's supposed to be the foundation of reality this right. first thing and if you have this particular understanding of moments that i've laid out uh, and this particular understanding of time and identifying time with god then you're like well yeah they just 
plops right into your standard Kalam cosmological argument. It plops right into your standard uh, arguments from contingency. Um, there you go. Boom. Uh, first moment never began to exist. Uh, I mean, you see this in Richard Swinburne, for instance, and his, uh, his cosmological argument for the existence of God. Um, earlier versions, he was a bit fuzzy on how many moments there were before the universe began to exist. Uh, in the more recent edition of uh, the coherence of theism, he's like, perhaps it's just one moment. I'm like, yep, cool. There we go. Dean Zimmerman does the same thing um, in some of his papers. So yeah, it, it just fits right into your standard cosmological argument. Um, so you, if you have reasons for thinking the universe is contingent or that the universe began to exist, then you get to a necessary being and that necessary being, you know, exists for a moment before the universe, but that moment never began. That's, that's, that's the, that's the broad, uh, picture without getting into all the details again. Gotcha. We'll have to wait for, for all the details at a later point. Yeah. I suppose. yeah. Um, well, uh, Ryan, it was awesome to talk mm -hmm. to you. I definitely appreciated you clearing some of those up. I had a lot of fun in this discussion for sure. Um, yeah, I wish we got to some of these other things. I mean, oh my goodness, like the changeability of God and stuff. Mm -hmm. Boy, maybe, is that a cool discussion. <laughs> it is. Maybe another um, time. Maybe another time. Yes, may, maybe we're going to have to do that one in the future, divine simplicity or whatever that entails, because that is that would be awesome. Um, but yeah, really cool stuff you shared with us about time. I hope uh, everybody learned a lot. Um, you have the book coming out. I know you have like a bazillion and one books and articles that are already out. Um, is there anything else you'd point people to? Um, where can they find you and your work? Yeah. So if you go to my website, rtmullins.com, and then I also have a podcast called the Reluctant Theologian Podcast, where I just try to talk to a lot of the different uh, philosophers and theologians and scientists that I meet at different conferences and at different places I travel. So I can try to let you in on on some of the stuff that I'm up to. Gotcha. Only reluctant ones, or or does any what any? Some they, they, they vary in their in their uh, degree <laughs> of reluctance. Uh, most of them aren't as reluctant as I am, but uh, but every once in a while, some of the Finnish people I've, I've hung out with, they are they are very reluctant. My goodness, <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. All right. Well, I appreciate the chat, Ryan. Anytime, anytime. Yep. Bye. Okay. Well, there we go. Good. Brilliant. Talk. Indeed. Awesome. That was a lot of fun. Good. Um. Cool. Cool. I appreciate you bearing with me on this. Uh, not only am I not an expert, but I got a concussion the other day. <laughs> oh. Oh, balls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, made myself a some espresso right before the interview i'm like i got yeah, this you gotta stay awake you gotta stay awake yeah it'll be it'll be fine yeah philosophy time is not gonna screw your head up even more no exactly ryan will do all the work right? yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah really cool man Whew. okay cool cool um yeah that was fun we definitely yeah. gotta continue this at some point i'm not sure, sure. when i'm actually working on a, a i'm kind of closing down my podcast a bit um mm -hmm. or at least putting it on pause because I'm working on this absolutely massive project. And hey, actually, if you want to pitch in and help with a few things, it'd be cool. Um, let's see, where should I start? Yeah, History of in... philosophy, right? So we mm, got okay. like Socrates saying, well, I'm not going to write anything down because really we need philosophy <laughs> yeah. like in the interplay of lively minds, right? Yeah. Um, and then Plato's like, yeah, I got you, man. But how about we just do a dialogue so we can pull people into this discussion and kind of like kindle in them these questions and these ideas i know it's not really having a conversation but this is good as written medium can get we have aquinas doing the question and answer all that to say i'm building an ai powered catholic chat bot oh wow yeah man it's awesome so it that starts with, pretty cool starts with theism then it goes to christ and then it eventually leads to the catholic church and i know mm -hmm. you're not on board with all those things 
Um, but we're but a lot of out, stuff. A lot of stuff I like. Yeah, it's good. Oh yeah, we're building out arguments for God, so people can come to it and say, you know, snarky atheist, <laughs> prove God, yeah. and it'll be like, all right, cool. Are you looking for like? like deductive arguments or are are we looking to build like kind of a cumulative case like deductive arguments cool all right i mean there's a ton in the tradition and it just lays them all out you can launch objections if you say i don't know about this form thing it'll take you to a section to describe the different four causes and form all this other stuff so building out a philosophy section that you can reference so you can just ask it things and it can talk back in a pretty cool way it's still being built there's a heck of a lot to do yeah um but yeah kind of focusing the efforts on that that sounds pretty cool um someone you might want to talk to is chad mcintosh um he's been building a website where it's it just takes you through all the different versions of different uh, natural theological arguments um, it's been a big thing for him he recently just published uh i think two philosophy compass papers or maybe they're about to come out which is try to summarize here's all the different natural uh theological arguments that are being run today or discussed today and like a, just a big a big part of his research is just cataloging here's all the different ones he was on capturing christianity at some point and did this absurd like three hour or five hour video where he just went through all the different ones i wouldn't recommend watching because it's that's boring to sit for five hours but um <laughs> but 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 chad i like chad and he's he's yeah he's he's that is a big uh, interest of his just cataloging here's all the different natural theological arguments is how you defend them all and everything oh that's cool and I'm he's been trying to, to do a lot of uh, historical work too to go here's all these crazy ones in history that nobody talks about like so yeah cool yeah mm-hmm. i definitely have to check that out i i think i saw you appear on capturing christian i'm really not sure how i I've been on there a few times. I think I've been on there three times, four times, four times, five times, five times. Sorry. Yeah. Five. Yeah. That's right. Because I did Yeah. I did disability one. That's right. How do you feel about him potentially converting to Catholicism? Can can I ask you, are you a specific Christian denomination? I, so my denomination is called the Christian church, um, which okay. the, the people in Finland just, they kept laughing at that. They're like, what is this? Like the church of God. And I'm like, well, that's, that's a different denomination. And there's just the restaurant <laughs> of food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're just, yeah. So it's, it's, it was this group of people in Scotland who got tired of denominations and they're like, we're going to go to the new world and just be Christian. And then they created a denomination and that the denomination also split. Uh, so they got the church of Christ and then there's something <laughs> called the disciples of Christ. So it's not very good at being not a denomination. Um, <laughs> So I'm ordained in that tradition. Uh, oh, but, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. But I've not been able to go to a Christian church in a long time because I've been living in Scotland for so long and then living in Finland. And okay. these are churches that really mainly only exist like in the Midwest and, and, and on down to Georgia and Florida. And now that I'm in Philadelphia, my, there's, there's that church just it's not here. It's not here. It never really made its way to the East Coast. So, gotcha. so I just go to whatever church seems like they love jesus and they're not uh, assholes i mean that's basically <laughs> it's a low bar but uh not a lot of churches can jump that bar so yeah You're in philadelphia now i just moved to philadelphia about a month ago i just moved away from philadelphia ah. about a month ago ah. yeah <laughs> I, I was i was over in uh, king of prussia ah, okay okay no yes, i'm like i'm in old city like at the moment Ooh. so like okay don't get yeah. stabbed all right and well there's been yeah there's been uh Fourth of July, I was in England. I was flying back um, from a conference, a Muslim conference, and there were two shootings right, like, like, in a, like a block away from my apartment. And I'm like, oh, like, yeah. So I'm like, my wife and I are leases coming up in October, and so I'm like, okay, let's find a place anywhere else where we won't get shot. So 
Oh man, yeah, it's really expensive over there, Mike. It is too, and you get stabbed. And you get stabbed. Or the other, in my opinion. No, gift no, there, there was a... Expensive and no gift stabbed. Yeah, last week there was a guy trying to stab people outside of the 7-Eleven um, oh. that's right next to us, too. So, we got, yeah, we got both. We got shootings and stabbings all right here. And, wow. Okay. And we're right next to Betsy Ross's house, you know, so I'm like, this is a tourist area. Are, are you teaching over in uh, Philly? or No, so my wife is, uh, she has a, she's working at the Templeton Foundation, the John Templeton Foundation. I've heard of that. Why, mm-hmm. why is that ringing a bell? It's the major funder for a lot of different theological projects um they do other things too they do science and and whatnot so my wife is uh fun like the gatekeeper for funding for like biology and plant science okay that's how i know it they do grants yes Um, templeton grants for biology okay yep 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 all right yep yeah so she's doing that i am um gonna be teaching part-time uh do these intensive courses for the master's program at palm beach atlantic university and the university of lucerne and then William Lane Craig, he's creating a master's program for kind of like his legacy project is what he calls it. Okay. Um, And I'm going to do two courses for that, but I don't know where that's going to be. They're still negotiating that stuff. Nice. But you can do it all from Philly? Yeah, that's going to be like on, those are going to be online. Um, The Palm Beach stuff, that's in person. They just bring me down every once in a while. I do some intensive courses. And same thing with uh, Lucerne is it's online, um, but they also do some in-person uh, stuff. So I'm going to go to Sicily um, next or in August. Yeah. To do the in-person summer school. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's yeah. a lot of fun. Are you yeah. getting sick and tired of like philosophy of time or are you kind of moving to a different interest or where are you at? Uh, so I'm trying to finish up this book on, on time, uh, on, on divine temporality. And then I've got this other project I'm working on called a little book about a big God. So it's supposed to be a hundred pages or less trying to talk about just what do I think God is like? Uh, why would God create anything at all? What kind of universe would God create? What are his options? If God knows the future, what kind of impact does that have on his emotional life? Um, but the overall context for it is uh, you want to be close to God, which means you need to you want to be close to someone. You need to know who they are, what they're up to, what are their reasons for why they act, and then how do you, what are their goals, and how do you participate in those goals? Uh, so that's why I'm looking at why would God create anything at all? What kind of universe does he create? Like, what is he up to? What is What are his reasons for doing all this stuff? So you can figure out what God's goals are. Then you can be like, oh, well, do I want to participate in this whole project of uh, being friends with God? Uh, hopefully people will say yes. Um, they could say no. I mean, you know, but that's it's, so yeah, it's going to be a mixture of like devotional, philosophical theology, sarcasm, because um, I don't usually get as much sarcasm in my writing as I'd like in academic settings. So, <laughs> yeah, and it'll be like twenty bucks. So it'll actually you can afford it instead of these other academic books that are hundred bucks. Sweet. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. Cool. So, what is your favorite argument for God, and is it also uh, snarky or sarcastic? No, it's not snarky or sarcastic. But yeah. um, I really like Samuel Clark's uh, uh, cosmological argument from contingency and all the different versions I've seen of it. Wasn't um, he friends with Newton? He was. He was. It was best as you could be friends with Newton because Newton. <laughs> Newton had a mental breakdown at one point, um, and it sounds like he was just. He was very introverted and just. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, as close as you could be. Yeah, he was. He was friends with Newton to some okay. extent. Gotcha. No, it's funny. Some of those figures. Um, yeah, I also on my podcast do some economic stuff, mm-hmm. and I was starting to do a few like biographies, different people, like one of Augustine, and I was going to do one of Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. And what everybody thinks of this like intellectual giant, you know, writing these massive treatises. Well, in his private correspondence, apparently he was like best buds with David Hume. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All they both out in lived with their moms, mm-hmm. and they're writing it back, and they're like, "Bro, wouldn't it be so cool to be roommates?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> like forty-something-year-old bachelors who want to be roommates to their BFF, but they're just living with their mom. And you know, years later, we just kind of like lose all of the ridiculousness, and we just have their awesome work. So I, I'm not surprised <laughs> got something like that going on with Newton. Yeah. So what I would, what I love about the Smith and, and Hume case is when you see like where they lived in Edinburgh. Uh, in, in the capital of Scotland, and you would think what's going on at that time, it was uh, Edinburgh was called Old Reeky. That's its nickname, which like as as old Scots term for like it smells really bad, like it's stinky. Oh, it reeks. Uh, yeah, it reeks exactly. Yeah, because the the sewage system was they didn't have one, uh, and England had figured this out, but people in Scotland hadn't. And so, and housing was terrible because if you had a good house, that's cool. But most of the houses they're gonna there were these they had these. I guess like skyscrapers for their standards that don't exist anymore because they all got burned down and stuff. Um, so living in a nice place that was rare. And so those guys were able to do it. So they stayed with their, their families and stuff. So it was just very different times, very weird times. Man. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Well, I should probably, uh, should probably head on out. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, you know, this is kind of an interesting chat. Sometimes I include kind of the post, podcast wrap up like we mm-hmm. we've been doing into the show um are you all right with me including that or no yeah it's fine i don't care okay. yeah why not cool if you can yeah. if there's good stuff to salvage i mean go for it but i mean i, I like the story of, of, of ricky and the sewage system and adam smith and, and Isaac <laughs> Newton. i think everybody will yeah i, I have chats with it you familiar with uh, pat flynn at all yeah 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 yeah, i've had him on the show a couple times and it will start with like all right we're on topic and it will end with just us having quote unquote ended the podcast an hour and a half ago and still yeah. pontificating about things. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. If you ever reach out to him, I could see you two definitely uh, being friends. He's, yeah. Cause I've seen some of his videos. He seems, he seems like a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could, yeah, I, I could totally I don't know, introduce you guys if you wanted to. Cause I, th- I think, it, it, yeah, I know a little bit about philosophy um, more than the average Joe probably. Um, I'm not Pat Flynn, you know, I think that he'd, he'd definitely bring out some really cool parts of, uh, of your thinking. So, yeah, yeah, I'd be open to that. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, for real, let's end. Uh, great. All right. Sounds Thanks good. for coming on. Yep. Thanks, yeah. Ryan. All right. Cheers.